Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, January 22nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, lawsuits against the Mississippi Department of Corrections emerge following recent prison violence. Then, a push for a stronger investment in early childhood education. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, Mississippi Blood Services designates a critical need. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An investigation is underway into the beating deaths of two more inmates at a Mississippi prison. 35-year-old Timothy Hudspeth and 36-year-old James Talley died from their injuries at Parchman Tuesday. This follows five other inmate deaths stemming from the recent wave of prison violence. Attorney Carlos Moore, a managing partner with the Cochran firm, has filed two lawsuits on behalf of inmates and families alleging inhumane treatment in the Mississippi prison system. He says following the recent altercations at Parchman, inmates were moved to a unit without electricity and running water. Moore also tells MPB's Desiree Frazier some guards are involved in the violence that's taken place at the facility. In the lawsuits, we are alleging uh, the constitutional rights have been violated. Uh, We believe that um, the Eighth Amendment has been violated, the Fourth Amendment, uh, the Fourteenth Amendment has been violated, so that's what we're alleging. We're also alleging that the uh, policies, procedures, and customs and practices of MDOC is what's leading. Um, they are the moving force behind all this violence. They are understaffed, they are underfunded. Uh, some of the guards themselves are opening up the cells and allowing these people to, the gangs to fight, uh, the inmates to fight, and so they are complicit. Uh, and they're active participants in the violence that's going on, and and people are dying because of that. And so we have to get a uh, handle on it. And not only are they allowing the inmates to fight the guards, according to the letter I wrote from my client, he was beaten by actual guards and state police uh, after the social media uh, postings to tell the free world what's going on. This month, uh, the guards went in there and the troopers went in there and beat the, the inmates for getting out, for the word getting out. And so that's unacceptable. When you talk about those um, particular amendments, can you just give us an overview of what that means in a nutshell? The Eighth Amendment uh, prohibits uh, cruel and unusual uh, inhumane treatment of individuals, of citizens of the United States. And so uh, while you can incarcerate people, you still have to treat them uh, humanely, and that's not happening. No running water, uh, no working toilets, no showers, uh, no food for days, uh, no heat, uh, uh, no beds. And so, I mean, terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, no medical attention. Was this in 29? They were in Unit tw- 29 originally, and then they were transferred uh, to Unit 32, which had not been uh, in use since 2008, and that's where they had all these terrible conditions. Uh, 29 was bad, but, I mean, 32 was even worse. You go from bad to worse. I mean, from 29, which it was messed up after the assault, the riots, then taking a 32... 
that's been closed down for 11 years. No running water, no electricity, uh, no running toilets. I mean, it was horrible. It was not. It was worse than third world. And, and what is he um, in for? That's not even important to me. Uh, you can look it up. I give I give you his name. It's a public record. But that is Jarvis is his name. You mentioned some of the other amendments. You mentioned the eighth. And can you describe the Fourteenth Amendment? Is due process, as everyone knows, due due process, equal protection. That's guaranteed according to the Constitution. They're not getting that. I mean, these people have been, I mean, treated worse than animals. I mean, they have not get have not received any of the standard things, necessities of life. I mean, the pure necessities of life, not creature comforts, but necessities, food and water are necessities. Have you been in contact with any legislators or with any officials from the prison or anything? Of course, we have been in contact with the commissioner, uh, Hall, when she was in charge. Uh, we had been in contact with her before we even filed the lawsuit on, on behalf of the first two. Uh, and so now we have all these other clients we're working on behalf of, and we will be in touch with the proper authorities. What has been their response to date? Nothing. They never do anything. What are you calling for? We are calling for immediate action. We are calling for uh, the parole board to do their job. Some of these individuals are eligible for parole. Go ahead and parole these individuals. Secondly, the governor, Tate Reeves, has the singular authority to grant pardons and clemency. He could commute some of these sentences and uh, go ahead and let some of these individuals out. If the state doesn't have the money to take care of them, that's another route that the governor could take on his own unilaterally is to pardon them or uh, grant them clemency and commute their sentences. So we're asking for that. we also going to ask the legislature to uh, make sure the penalties fit some of these crimes. I mean, the, the books, the laws on the books need to be rewritten. And there needs to be a whole sweeping change in the criminal justice system in our, in our state. So we're going to advocate for that. That takes time. But the immediate thing that can be done is to either parole some of these individuals or for the governor to take unilateral action. How do you feel about the governor's announcement that he has appointed an interim uh, commissioner and a search team to begin looking for a commissioner nationwide to handle reform? That is only a Band-Aid on something that is a life-threatening occurrence situation right now. So uh, that's all good if we had time. People are dying almost a daily basis, and something needs to be done sooner than later. These individuals' health and safety are uh, at stake, and the governor needs to take take swift action. Uh, The task force is fine, uh, but who's to say how many we're going to die between now and in six months or nine months when he gets a report from his task force. Carlos Moore is a managing partner with the Cochrane firm. Coming up, a push for a stronger investment in early childhood education. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Education advocates are lobbying legislators to put more funding into early learning collaboratives. Rachel Cantor is the executive director of Mississippi First. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the 18 existing collaboratives only reach 8% of four-year-olds statewide and that their success warrants more investment from the legislature. So a bill requesting an increase is going to be filed this session. We know that the Speaker of the House, the Lieutenant Governor, and the Governor have all talked about the importance of early childhood education. And so we think that now, six years in, is a great time to raise the rate and expand the program to more kids and communities. Uh, For those who may not be familiar, can you explain what the Learning Collaborative is and how much right now is going to fund it? Currently, the Early Learning Collaboratives are a $6.5 million program. It's a pre-K program for four-year-olds that brings in public schools, Head Start, and private child care centers on a community level to serve four-year-olds in a high-quality way in those programs. It's our state's state-funded pre-K program. And right now, it doesn't cover the entire state. Not all children have access. That's right. Only children in 18 communities statewide have access to Early Learning Collaboratives. How do you feel about that? We would love to see the program expanded. We know that there are many kids that don't have access to anything at all, and there are a lot of kids who have access to something, but the quality is still developing. And what we've seen in the early learning communities is that we get all providers in the system, all the providers are able to provide, then provide quality that's consistent across providers, and it's just a great opportunity for kids to be able to go to the type of early child program that best fits them and still receive that same quality. The data for children in our early learning collaboratives is fantastic. They outperform children in other types of pre-K programs in the state of Mississippi. About 75% of kids in early learning collaboratives hit the cut score to be ready for kindergarten. And what we know about entering kindergartners, the average entering kindergarten, only a third of those students are ready for kindergarten. So double the amount of kids are ready in the, in the state-funded pre-K program than just the average Mississippi kid. So 18 collaboratives, what percentage is that of what is needed? It's a little less than 8% of four-year-olds in the state of Mississippi, so it's 7.9%. We're really looking to expand to get, ideally to get to 25%, even if it takes us a couple of years. Why is that a benchmark? Well, right now what we know is that there are about 15% of kids that have don't have access to anything at all. And of the 80 about 85% of kids that we believe have access to something, there's variable quality. Nationwide, no state provides pre-K to 100% of 4-year-olds. People can always choose not to have pre-K. They may choose different types of programs. But if we can get to 25%, we'll be about in the middle of the pack in terms of the number. Of course, we'd love to get more than that, to have more kids in the system. But this would be a huge benchmark for our state. Why wouldn't any state want 100%? I think it's a function of the fact that early childhood programs are fairly new. We've just started funding them on a state level in the last 30 years. And so people are sort of building and expanding their programs. And then there's the issue of there are some parents and families that want to keep their four-year-old at home. And so they're not necessarily looking for a seat in a program. That is a smaller and smaller percentage of families, but that is always going to be a percentage. And so just like in Mississippi, Mississippi's program is voluntary. Many states have voluntary programs. What are the chances you think that funding will be increased per child? I'm very confident that the legislature is looking 
at this as a priority this session. I think what it will come down to is exactly how much we want to expand and how aggressively, because as you know, there are always pressures on the budget, so we want to make sure that people remember that this should be a priority. Thank you so much, Rachel Cantor, Mississippi First. Thank you. Republican Senator Bryce Wiggins of Pascagoula is the new vice chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. He shares his support for the program with our Desiree Frazier. My background as chairman of Excel by Five, which was in Pascagoula, which at the time was the largest Excel by Five program, it taught me the success and the benefit of high-quality early education. So then as I got more into it, you learn about the brain research, you learn about uh, the the positive effects that happen. And then with the collaboratives, you've seen the results. It, the data doesn't lie. It's there. And then the recognition that we received, top five in the country in early education, as I said in my earlier remarks, uh, we, we had nothing ten, five years ago. And we're top five in the country at this moment in time. And we're hoping to go number one. And, you know, we in Mississippi... Uh, at times have had a lot of, um, uh, you know, setbacks. But we are doing things right in a lot of areas, and this is one of those. And I want to see us succeed on that. Do you think there's a will to make pre-K statewide? Uh, Through the collaboratives. And let me say this, um, you know, the the key, and it's supported by evidence, it's supported by the data, is it has to be high quality of a high-quality nature to do that. And if you, if you just, that's why the Collaborative Act has, in my opinion, has worked to the, to the success that it has, is because we've required that it be of a high-quality nature, that there be accountability in it, and it's not just what I call a blank check, okay? So can we get there? I believe we can. And remember, this is about our four-year-olds. And because that's the that's the uh, the benchmark where we where we need to be looking at, um, it's going to take money. Um, but the way I also talked about in my prepared remarks, it requires a public-private partnership, and that's the way we're going to succeed in Mississippi. We don't have the resources of California or New York or Texas. Okay, it's going to take everybody working together, and that's what you saw with this coalition that, by the way, didn't ha- didn't exist five years ago. Do you know how much money it would take to provide pre-K uh, across the state? Uh, so if you um, – there's, there's numbers out there. You can do the calculation. But we, we, it takes about $4,000 per child to educate on the pre-K level. On, is that on for the, one year? Uh, yes. Okay. And then the way the collaborative is designed – is that the state will put in a mat will put in half that and through the collaboratives and the public I'm sorry the private donations they will match the other half okay it's the public private partnership so where the benchmarks are we want to get uh, as of my understanding through near and all the other experts is you want to get to around the 25% of your 4 year olds i mean because that's the that's the benchmarks where we're, we're not there yet okay uh, but we're hoping to, to get there. Um, and, and I should say this on the money. This, you want to talk about a return on your investment? This is one of this is uh, arguably the best return on investment of state dollars that we have. Um, and the data is, is bearing that out. Any idea how long it would take to get to that point? Uh, the, it, would, it needs to be a number of years. But as look at where we've come from in just five years. 
okay? We went from zero to now I think it's around 20 collaboratives. The first year we started out with 11, okay? The, legisla uh, the legislature has appropriated those additional funds and brought on additional collaboratives, and they're succeeding, and the children are the beneficiaries of that. So it, the old slow and steady wins the race, and that's where I think we need to go. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. Bryce Wiggins is the vice chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, Mississippi Blood Services designates a critical need. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Testosterone replacement has gotten to be a big thing that we see uh, in men, and it's uh, certainly the evidence has gone a lot of different ways with that about whether it's effective. Uh, normal testosterone levels do go down as you age, starting at about age 30 for men. And uh, by age 60, about 20% of the population, of the male population, uh, has levels that are uh, below sort of the normal cutoff. Um, a lot of these men will be asymptomatic, meaning they don't have any kind of symptoms or problems with anything. A lot of them do, though, and um, testosterone replacement in the past has been used for a lot of different symptoms, and those can be sort of mild, vague symptoms like weakness or fatigue or maybe just not having the uh, you know, the energy that you used to have, uh, it's been used, of course, to uh, build muscle mass and, um, uh, and also for impotence uh, is another one, or erectile dysfunction. There was a recent study that looked at this in retrospect and prospectively in a couple of studies just to see what's actually beneficial because we do know that testosterone replacement is not without side effects. There's certainly a lot of side effects with raising blood pressure, with raising your red cell count, and it can increase your risk for cardiovascular disease over time. Uh, so in this uh, look at the data that's out there, it seems like, uh, and this is a, a recommendation based on the data by the American College of Physicians, uh, they recommended testosterone replacement only for those men who have symptomatic complaints of erectile dysfunction or impotence. For, um, for everybody else that has other symptoms and low levels, even if they have a low level, if they don't have those, uh, that symptom in particular, it's not recommended that, that, uh, you replace that. So something to think about if your physician does or your healthcare provider does say, Hey, I think you need to take some testosterone. Ask them why. Why is always a good question. Um, and again, uh, the most recent information, uh, the risk sort of outweighs the benefit for those other things. And you don't really see a lot of benefit outside, um, outside that one symptomatic complaint. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. 
Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A critical blood shortage has Mississippi hospitals and donation centers in crisis status. Blood banks are nearly out of every type of blood they need to serve hospitals across the state. Emily Austin is the Marketing and Communications Manager for Mississippi Blood Services. She tells MPB's Kobe Vance every two seconds, someone needs blood. So actually for about the past 12 months, we have teetered on having enough blood. And right now we have actually reached what we call crisis status. And that is when we are nearly out of every type of blood. That's positive, negative of all the blood types and platelets Um, to the point where we are struggling to fill hospital orders. So the reason that that becomes an issue for the general public is that um, every two seconds somebody needs blood. And if it's not on the shelf, it's not something that can be manufactured. It has to come from voluntary blood donors. And when we don't have the product, we will reach out to our partners um, and ask for assistance. But the problem is right now is this is a nationwide crisis. And there are blood centers all across the country that don't have enough. And it's because we don't have enough donors coming out. Going forward, what's the kind of what's the plan? How, how are you going to get more people to come out to donate more blood? Sure. Well, we've been putting out um, crisis messaging for about a week now. Um, here in our Flowood Center, we're giving away fleece jackets in an effort to encourage people to come out. Because while it should be an altruistic thing to come out and donate blood, we know some people um, would like to get a little a little something for their time, which we completely agree. We have blood drives all across the state, so the best option is to go to our website or download our app to find the location that's closest to you. You mentioned that like uh, you need every blood type, so even people with like you know most people most people think about oh it's O's that are going to be the most important, um, but. Y- to be clear, you do need, even like anybody can come out and needs to donate blood right now. We do. We need A, B, O, A, B, positive and negative of all of those. We need every kind of blood out there. There isn't just, there's not um, a type that we don't need right now. And then uh, how many people do you need to come out just, just per day to uh, keep blood in Mississippi? Okay. We need to collect an average of 250 units each and every day. And so far in the month of January, we have not seen that a single day. So we have been short. Um, There was actually one day earlier this week where we only collected about 98 units. So that's a huge deficit. In January, do you all typically see this kind of down, uh, down, like less donations in this month? We do. Um, And just to give a brief overview, the majority of the blood that we collect comes from the high schools. So during the summer and over the holidays, we see decline in donations for the simple reason that we're not able to be in the schools. So over the holidays, starting just before Thanksgiving, we'll see a decline. And then the 1st of January, we always see a huge decline. And it can be attributed to people are just getting back from the holidays or just getting back into the swing of things. And donating blood is not on top of mind, but it really, really needs to be. Because like I said, we need to collect about 250 units each and every day. And literally every two seconds, somebody needs blood. Um, to kind of, which is, I know it's hard to wrap your head around, but if you think about it as um, like cancer patients need blood and platelets each and every day, um, if there was to be a major car accident, that one victim can take anywhere from 50 to 100 units of blood. So that's a lot. And it has to be on the shelves 24 to 48 hours before it goes out to the hospitals. So there is never a day that we don't need blood. 
Emily Austin is the Marketing and Communications Manager for Mississippi Blood Services. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.